All right. Well, that is, um, it was such a joy and privilege to have so many kids uh, part of our church community here at Jericho. And my name's Brad. I'm uh, the lead pastor here at Jericho Ridge. I'm part of the teaching and leadership team. Uh, and I introduce myself uh, to you almost every week that way when I'm up here. And uh, I want to say that that's not actually the only job title that I have in, and certainly not the only thing that is important about me. So in addition to being a pastor here at Jericho Ridge, uh, I am also a wine consultant. So I'm WSET certified as an enologist, uh, which uh, it doesn't mean anything to you in particular. Uh, but uh, it, it, on Mondays, which is my day off from Jericho Ridge, you can find me down at Everything Wine, uh, on the bypass there on Mondays, and I work in the vintages room on uh, Mondays. And I'm also an hourly consultant uh, with a U.S.-based wine company called Pix, which is like the Google of wine. And I also work for the Jesus Collective, which is an Anabaptist network uh, that is uh, affiliated um, with uh, a number of different denominations, Anabaptist denominations, as a hub leader or as a small group facilitator for them. And uh, so those are all the though, just job titles uh, that, that uh, are attached to me in some way. But they don't actually help you understand. They might help you get to know me a little bit more, or maybe he likes wine, maybe he likes connecting with people in other ways. Um, but between those four things, that actually occupies a lot of real estate in my calendar. And for many of us, this is the case. If you think about our work lives, both paid and unpaid labor, that gives the majority of shape to our days. And uh, it's often how we introduce ourselves in our culture. Oh, we say things like, oh, my name is X and I'm a Y. I'm a teacher, or I'm retired from working for the government, or I'm a mom, or I'm a student. And so in, in our culture, we understand that where we spend the majority of time actually impacts and shapes something of our identity. But the question is, how much of our identity is shaped by that? Because it definitely impacts how we interact with and connect with other people. Um, but it would be helpful and healthy for us to spend a little bit of time thinking about work and delving into the scriptures to understand, uh, from a biblical perspective, what is a theology of work. We can gain some insight and understanding on both the joys and some of the rhythms and some of the possible pitfalls of this thing that we call work. And, and again, I'm going to continuously use that as a shorthand, but it's for paid and unpaid labor. So if you are retired or if you're a student, still think in those terms of like, what is it that I give myself to, my energies? That is your work in this particular season of your life. And here at Jericho, we're currently teaching through uh, the 18 articles of what we call our Confession of Faith. And uh, that's our Mennonite brethren um, uh, articulation of what we understand the scriptures to teach uh, about particular topics. And we only have three left to tackle in this series. So next weekend, Brady Ash is going to be preaching uh, on politics, society, and the states. On a weekend when we take opportunity to celebrate our countries, Canadian and the U.S., uh, what does it mean to have engagement in a political sphere as people?
people of faith. What does that look like? And then on July the 10th, uh, we'll have Ken Esau with us. Ken is the director of our National Faith and Life team, so he chairs uh, the group that is responsible for writing and articulating our confessional realities, and he's going to talk with us about uh, the article on the sanctity of life, uh, which is uh, particularly salient for us in these days. And so today, we're going to look at Article 16, which is entitled, Work, Rest, and the Lord's Day. And earlier this year, in fact, twice over the course of the last 18 months, we've tackled the topic of rest and rhythms and Sabbath because of the challenge that we were in with COVID and the blurring of work and non-work life. And so we emphasize that aspect of rest uh, in other messages. And so I'm going to leave those alone this morning and just focus in on a theology of work. And we'll ask questions like, what place does work or should work occupy in Our lives beyond the 88,000 hours the average person puts in between uh, age 18 and retirement. And then the question that comes up is, you know, in the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 10.31, we're reminded that whatever we do, we should do it all to the glory of God. And so what does that mean? What does it mean to work for or uh, understanding to do our work as if we are doing it as unto the Lord. Because work matters. Your work matters. How you do it matters. Why you do it matters. And what you do matters as well. So let's look at how we express this in our confession of faith. Article 16, here's what we think that the scriptures say partially about work. Quote, we believe that God's act of creation is the model for human activity. While sin has corrupted work and rest, redeemed people are called to restore labor and rest to their proper place. So, right away, this points us backward, back into the Genesis account. And uh, looking at the book of Genesis and the original charge that God gave to humankind. If you look in the book of Genesis, in chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, we read this. I'm going to emphasize a few things in these verses. I'm reading from the New Living Translation in Genesis 2. By the seventh day, God had finished the work that God had been doing. So on the seventh day, God rested from all God's work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all of the work of creating that God had done. And so right away in the account of uh, the, the origins of the world, God is described as a worker, Ray Bystrom, who was a professor for a number of years at our Mennonite Brethren Seminary, talks about in the first chapters of the book of Genesis, God is depicted as things like a strategic planner, a designer, an engineer, a real estate developer, a project manager, a waste manager, and more, using language that we would be familiar with in our vocational settings. And and this is in direct contrast, by the way, to the gods of the ancient Near East. 
and, and the Greek gods, who, if you think about uh, and do a little bit of reading and study on those, those gods felt like work, work was totally beneath them. They just lounge about. They don't work. That's for, like, mere mortals to participate in. But in the Genesis account, we see that God is a worker. God is active. And then later in that same chapter, we see that God extends this mandate for work to the first humans. Genesis 2, later on, says, Then the Lord God took the man, Adam, and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And uh, Leah reminded us last week of what that verb and what that word means. It's a stewardship. It's an active participatory kind of word, to work and to take care. And in uh, our, our commentary on this article, we say this, quote, while it is not explicit in the biblical text, it is fair to understand human responsibility to extend beyond just the working of the land to the places of human culture as well as the natural world. In addition to caring for the creatures which God has created, humans are also responsible for the use of such elements of human culture like economics, art, music, sport, education, politics, to name but a few. Work of all sorts is the responsibility and proper end of human beings, end quote. So this, this invitation or an invocation to participate in work in Genesis, helps us understand this question of why we work. And we work because, firstly, God is a worker. God is a working God. And part of us as humans being made in God's image is that we have abilities and resources that then we are charged with to participate with God in activities that God sees and wanting to accomplish, things that are creative, things that are life-giving, things that advance order or justice or any number of other co-creative calls that we would participate in with and under God. And see, this is, this is in contrast sometimes to how we think and talk about work in the modern world. Oftentimes, if you listen to people talk about work, you would think that work is a result of the fall, and it's cursed, and it's horrible, and you just don't want to do it if you can at all avoid it. But really, work is not as a result of the fall or the entrance of sin into the world. Yes, sin has corrupted many things, including work, and it's made work to be challenging and changed, but the fundamental activity or invitation to work, to be a participant in a paid or unpaid capacity in the work in the world that God is doing is a result of being made in the image of God and the instincts that God has given to us to learn, to create, to produce. And so whenever and wherever you do that, in whatever field of endeavor, that you do that in, you are a co-participant and a receptor and an image bearer of that which God has declared good. When you dance or when you make a piece of art, even if it's just doodling, 
That is an image-bearing activity. You are reflecting or taking up the call to be a participant in the creative work of God and the character of God. When you work in the hospital as a nurse, as a doctor, as a porter, you get people to surgery on time. You are participating in the healing work that God desires to do in the world. When you pave a road or you design a building well, or you haul a criminal off to jail, or you organize a filing cabinet. You are a co-participant in bringing God's order into the world. And when you feel like all you do is an Uber driver for your teen, or you wipe snotty noses off of your babies all day, you get the title of mom or dad. And while the work is unpaid and often unglamorous, it's of immense relational importance because you're doing your work as an image bearer of God with other image bearers. And your work matters. Your work matters, whether it's paid or unpaid, because you and I have an opportunity when we work and as we work to improve the lives of uh, ourselves, of if you have a family, or of our communities. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, which we're going to come to in a minute, uh, the writer describes how work serves to, one of the functions of work is to provide for our needs. And the income or the products that are generated from our work get used to meet the physical, emotional, and practical needs of people in our lives, those who rely on us in some way. And so, let's say you work in the realm of finance. You're a banker or a lender. It isn't just about banking. Part of your work is that as you are employed, you get to put food on the table for those you're responsible to care for. You get to put a roof over heads. If you're a a teacher and you work in the education system or you're an administrator in the school system, that's not just about as valuable a task as it is of shaping young minds and hearts. You also, as a result of that work, have the resources available so that you can be generous to meet needs that arise in your own life and in the world and in the lives of people around you. You can be generous and compassionate. And so these are just some of the the rationales or the reasons as to the why behind our work. And it's not just why or what you do in your work that matters. The scriptures are also clear that how you do your work matters. And so again, I'll quote from Article 16 in the Confession of Faith, which says this, As creatures made in the image of God, Christians imitate the creator by working faithfully as they are able. They are to use their abilities and their resources to glorify God and to serve others. And because they bear the name of Christ, all believers are called to work honestly and diligently and to treat others with respect and dignity. So this answers the question for us, Should your work, if you are a person of faith, have any qualitative difference than a person who maybe doesn't share that sense of, I do this because I'm a co-participant with God in God's work in the world? 
And the question, well, the physical product you produce might not differ from the next woman or the next man on the assembly line. The way in which you work should have a certain quality to it. And we would use words like, it should be, you should work faithfully. You should work honestly. You should work diligently. Because your performance as an employee actually serves as a function and as a witness to others who are watching you, and ultimately then to the one whose name you bear. And this applies even in spaces or seasons where work feels meaningless and purposeless. I can remember one summer job that I had in high school, and maybe for you, you can just fix in your mind what was the most useless job you ever had, the most horrible job that you can imagine or that you, you participated in. I had a job one summer very briefly in high school, and it was during the area of energy deregulation in Ontario. And so now there were multiple options of companies from whom you could buy your natural gas. And so the way that this worked in Ontario was that these companies would employ students to go door to door, and you would knock on the person's door and ask if they would want to switch to your particular natural gas company. But the only problem, and the reason that this made the job so horrible, was that from my recollection, there was absolutely no advantage for anyone to switch. So I would knock on the door and give my whole spiel, and people would say, oh, that's great. Am I going to save money? And I would say, no, it's going to cost you the same amount as before. And they would say, oh, am I going to get like better natural gas from you guys than the other? And like, no, it's going to be the exact same natural gas coming into your home. But if you could please hand over some highly personal information like your bill and your signature, then I'll just carry it and be on my way. And so many, many doors were slammed in my face that hot Ontario summer. And it was a commission-based sales job. And so I didn't last for very long, and I did not make very much money uh, at all. And, and part of that was because I just felt like the job was totally useless. Like there was nothing I was adding to anyone's life, including my own, of any value by participating in that particular work. I could not, for whatever I tried, however I tried, link it to some greater purpose for the consumer or for me. And sometimes... Work, um, even work that maybe you enjoyed for a season, can feel a bit like that. And you get into this space where you just think, why in the world am I doing this? This is just totally useless or meaningless or purposeless. Well, the scripture speaks to that as well. Uh, the book of Ecclesiastes is uh, tucked away in the Old Testament. And and it's a book that where the writer is wrestling really honestly with work as one of the primary questions. Like, what, what is the purpose of my work? And I do all of these things, and I gain this stuff, and then at the end I have to give it away to somebody else when I die? What is that all about? And so in the book of Ecclesiastes, there's this real tension between the, the hopelessness of, uh, and the toil and the mundaneness of that and the sense of how maybe there is other things going on in that workplace. So turn with me in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 22. And, and the author just asks a fairly honest question in Ecclesiastes 2.22 and says this, what do people get for all of the toil and the anxious striving 
by which they labor under the sun. All the days their work is grief and pain. Even at night their minds do not rest. This too is meaningless. And it's just an honest reflection on the sense that sometimes when we sense that our work is devoid of any meaning, it can just feel soul-crushing. And we can then begin to feel meaningless. And intriguingly, as you trace the, the wrestle through the book of Ecclesiastes, the author comes around in a few moments to seeing that maybe we get into these kinds of spaces and maybe all that there is for us is to actually revel and enjoy in the small delights of life, just a daily blessing. When they finish work, the author talks about maybe we just enjoy a meal and eat and drink, and maybe that's what today's toil was about. And they write about the notion that even little things either can bring joy to us or even menial things can actually be endowed with purpose. Menial things like putting Ikea furniture together. Now you say, well, how in the world could that actually have any kind of purpose? Well, one of the things that the author in Ecclesiastes does is sets things in the context of relationships. And so when you think about, let's say you're putting together a bookcase for or with someone, what is the purpose of that? Why are you doing that? Maybe it's for a family member or for a friend who doesn't want to do that. So that relationship is actually the context in which you are doing that particular work. And when you situate work within the context of relationships, then that actually brings it back into that space sometimes of being more meaningful. Because you begin to think about, whom am I doing this for? And with whom am I engaged in this particular project? Even if the work itself doesn't feel meaningful, and even if sometimes the people around you are challenging to work with or for, we remind ourselves in those seasons that more than the bookcase, people matter to God. And so how would I take that attitude in this situation or this task of people mattering to me as well? And so your workplace, your school, or your retirement years may just be the context of new sets of relationships that are meaningful and have purpose to them. Yes, your job may suck. But whether it's slinging burgers or stocking shelves and you just think this is so boring, like what in the world am I accomplishing in the world by facing the mayonnaise appropriately? <laughs> but you can, in those contexts, think about not just the person who's going to buy that, but the coworkers that are around you. How are you contributing meaningfully to their work experience? How are you adding to their life in some meaningful way in the midst of what may be mundane work-a-day world? So your work, paid or unpaid, matters because people matter. And so when you can link your work through to people, either the ultimate people that you serve with the product that you manufacture, or the people that you work with. They matter and they deserve to be treated with fairness, respect, 
and dignity. And especially this is a word to those who are bosses or who are employers, to rightly steward the power and the authority and the differential that you have been given. As you work faithfully, honestly, and diligently, either as an employee or as an employer. So we've talked a little bit about why we work, how we work, the quality or the texture of our work, but there's also some very real dangers that the Scripture points out to us. Turn with me in your Bibles or on your devices to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. And I'll be reading from verses 6 to 10 in the New Living Translation. And this, uh, this has a word of warning. It's an exhortation because some things aren't going particularly well in the category of uh, work and employment for the Thessalonians. And so 2 Thessalonians 3 verse 6 says, And now, dear brothers and sisters, we give you this command in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Stay away from believers who are idle and who live idle lives and don't follow the tradition they receive from us. Verse 7. For you know that you ought to imitate us. We were not idle when we were with you. We never accepted food from everyone, anyone without paying for it. We worked hard night and day so we would not be a burden to any of you. We certainly had the right to ask you to feed us, but we wanted to give you an example to follow. Even while we were with you, we gave you this command, those who are unwilling to work will not get to eat. Yet we hear that some of you are living idle lives, refusing to work and meddling in other people's business. We command such people and urge them in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn their own living. As for the rest of you, dear brothers and sisters, never tire of doing what is good. So, one of the challenges that this text highlights for us is, is a sense of pressure, actually, to work. Now, uh, I come from a, a long family of entrepreneurs and business people, and so unwittingly, I adopted a philosophy with respect to work that was work night and day, work night and day, work night and day. And particularly those who have incomes that are based on commissions or entrepreneurs who work 80 hours a week for themselves so that they don't have to work 40 hours for someone else, it, it's a very real challenge in, in the world. Because more hours can mean more money. And that can turn some of us into machines, this sense of, of striving. And that can also come from our family of origin and our personality. And I felt this and knew this early in ministry life, and yet wasn't very aware of it. I remember uh, when we launched Jericho Ridge 17 years ago, I was determined, and a lot of times church planters are these A-type, go-get-em personalities, and so I was determined that this thing was going to be successful. And, and I was working night and day and night and day to make sure it was, because somehow I had slipped into this perspective that I was ultimately responsible for the church's success and that if the church succeeded, that I was a success. And if the church plant wasn't going well, then I was a failure and that I just needed to work harder at it. And so I had actually wedded my identity, my sense of wellness and wholeness and my personhood to the success of the church. And I was working night and day and night and day. And there's a phrase that became popularized in the Middle Ages, 
as a result of the teaching and theology of people like Martin Luther and John Calvin, and it's called the Protestant Work Ethic. And what happened, and some of you might recognize this from your own experience, is that some parts of the Bible, like 2 Thessalonians 3 here, for example, which, which is teaching a, a, rightly understood, is teaching a sense of industriousness, teaching a, a sense of, of like a virtue attached to work. Like don't be idle, be productive and constructive in, in contributing in some way. And so where this got awry was it got attached to both identity and then it also got attached to the blessing of God on your life. And so if you were prosperous in your work, clearly the hand of the Lord was on you. And if you worked hard but were not prosperous, well, there was something wrong with you and probably you had some hidden sin in your life or something else that needed to be attended to. But when godliness got connected with economic status, the Protestant work ethic was born in an unhelpful and unhealthy way. And people who worked very hard but were not successful were considered hashtag unblessed. <laughs> and, and this becomes a danger for those with high drive and high capacity because work can really become idolatry when our identity becomes wedded to it and our worth economically and our self-worth can become easily identified with it. And then we take other steps that are unintended consequences. So think for a moment of how that sounds to people who have disabilities. Why aren't you contributing to society? Or people who are not out there in the workforce for a various set of reasons. What's wrong with them? Why can't they get a job? We have to be very careful when we start to attach work and worth together. Because this text is actually not directed at those who are, cannot participate in work. It's actually directed at those who are just flat out unwilling to work in any meaningful or contributing way, paid or unpaid. And so it's very important to keep in front of us as Christians the notion that a person is not defined by what they do. You matter to God, and you matter to us here at Jericho Ridge, regardless of your job situation, or your title, or your bank account, and how much money is in it or not in it. Because your worth is not determined by your work. So that's a pitfall that that we have to take care to avoid in Christian community. The other pitfall comes when we confuse our vocation with our occupation. And here's what I mean by those things. Your occupation is, is a role. It's a title that you might have. It's what uh, takes up your time, paid or unpaid. And it might, uh, it might be what you would put on a business card or in the footer of an email or something. It might be that you're a farmer or that you're uh, a mother or that you're a dental hygienist. But that's your occupation or maybe your career. That is not your vocation. Vocation uh, is from the Latin. So you'll have to work out Steve Nicole's shirt because it's also in Latin. Find him afterwards 
and you'll get a little Latin, two Latin lessons in one morning, actually. But vocation is from the Latin vocatio, to call, the sense of calling. And, and each and every person, because you're created in the image of God, has a calling on your life. And, and your primary calling is to become like Christ in everything that you do. And so your occupation uh, becomes the arena in which your calling plays itself out for a period of time in your life. Those who are not yet in the workforce or choose not to be in the workforce still have a calling, even if they may not have an occupation. Those of you who are retired still have a calling on your life that will persist until your last breath and it outlives your occupation and whatever you did to earn a paycheck for a year or series of years. And your occupation does matter because it is the place where we spend so much time, but it's not the only thing that matters. And in Christian community, we toss this word calling around fairly loosely, and so I want to just define it a little bit for us, because oftentimes, when I was growing up, when I heard the word calling, that was attached to only two things, missionaries and pastors. So if you were going to do one of those two things, which for whatever reason, in, in my young mind, those were the two like only super Christian jobs that people had. And they were called. The rest of us would settle for something else, but those two, they were called to the ministry or called to the church in some way. And while this isn't wrong, it's not an inappropriate way to use language, it's a truncated uh, use of the vocation or calling that we have. Because God has a calling on each and every one of you. God calls some of you to be counselors because God has given you skills as listeners and with gifts of wisdom and discernment. And you may or may not get paid for that. God calls some to be office managers. God calls some to be mechanics to be software developers, or to be IT managers. God calls and gifts some to be broadcasters, or artists, or educators, or nurses, or volunteer chaplains, or to be prison guards or lifeguards. God calls some to be gardeners, and some to be biologists, and some to be engineers. And the key question is this sense of, do you understand what it is that God has placed in your life as a calling, and how is that connected to the gifts and abilities and resources that God has entrusted you with? Because once those two things get a little bit more clarity in your life, then sometimes a career path can emerge out of those things. But the sense of calling is an aspect that applies wherever you find yourself. I love the way that Martin Luther King Jr. said this. He once said, quote, if a man is called to be a street sweeper, he should sweep streets as a Michelangelo painted or as Beethoven composed music or Shakespeare wrote poetry. He should sweep streets so well that the hosts of heaven and earth will pause to say, here lived a great street sweeper who did his job well. If you're called to be a street sweeper, 
you do it faithfully, you do it honestly, you do it diligently, and you do it as a testimony to the God who called you. For me, I would say that part of my my vocatio, my calling, has to do with equipping, encouraging, and educating. There's, there's some teaching components in there. And so wherever I am, and through the whole course of my life, those are the things that I have found myself doing, whether it's behind a tasting bar educating people about wine, or whether it's behind a pulpit teaching theology. I have a sense that God has called me to impact the lives of others by collecting and communicating information in a way that creates opportunities for growth in the lives of people. And so over the course of my life, I have taught in many different places. At a Bible college level, I've taught in African villages. I've taught in church settings. I just, I love that sense of calling to equip and educate others. And so my occupation finds a a fit with that in this season of my life and work. And, And for some people, it doesn't. Your calling and your occupation might have differing expressions, Uh, in your life. Or you may have a calling that actually never finds itself expressed vocationally, and you may never receive a paycheck for it. But in discovering and living into your God-given calling matters. Diving into it, discovering how it shifts in periods of your life is your work to do. It may pay you well, it may never pay you. But it, if it's an invitation from the God who made you and gave you those gifts and deposited them into you, then living into it well is going to bring you more fully alive and help you more fully align with the desires and plans that God has for God's world. And so this is a question that I want to invite you to sit with. What is your calling What is your sense of God's calling on and in your life? If you can find an alignment with occupation, that's a great gift, but it is not always a match. But answering that question of calling is going to help you define and find purpose beyond the the ability that your occupation will occupy in your life. And it's going to help you find meaning and purpose in the work that you do, whether paid or unpaid. Uh, Ron and Carell and Deb are going to come and lead us in worship and song. And so you may already at this point in your life have a clear sense of that uh, vision that God has given of you and that calling that God has on your life. You may have gone through experiences in your life where that's become fuzzy or muddy in some way. And if that's the case, we want to support you as a church family. And one of the ways that we do that is through having people who exercise their gifts of discernment. 
And uh, we do this through the work of coaching and cheering you on, praying with you, learning and understanding more about you. And so that's one reason why Abby, who's our youth intern, is going to spend so much time with our youth this, this summer. Uh, activities every Tuesday, every Thursday, and then one-on-one meetings out of that. She wants to get to know them so that she can help shape that sense of who are you and what has God called you to do. It's one of the great delights that we have as pastors when people call and say, I'm looking for some direction in my life. I'm not sure. Can you help uh, me pray through that and discern what that means in, my, in this season of life? And so we as a staff team are always available for you in that. And we also have many people at Jericho who are very wise and who have lived this out in their lives uh, in fruitful and significant ways that we can say, hey, you might want to consider talking to so-and-so about how they've experienced this in their life. Uh, And so we'd be happy to put you in touch with them so that you can hear some of their journey stories and gain a stronger sense of clarity for you. But we also uh, don't want you to leave today without feeling a sense of support from us as a faith community. And so you might, for example, find yourself in a workplace environment that's highly challenging. Maybe there's relational dynamics going on, uh, there's conflict, and, and you just say, I don't know what to do, I'm not sure how to handle that. We would love to pray for you uh, and pray about that in this season. And so Allie, Nicole, and Gary Stevenson and myself will be available at the back. We'll have name tags on, and we would love for you to come and pray with us. It would just be our great privilege to actually listen to God and listen to you and see if God would say anything to you in that space today. Maybe you have a work decision to make that you need wisdom for. Uh, our prayer team would love to be available for you. If you're online, you can just email us at prayer at jerichoridge.com and we'll be in touch. And as we, as we sing these last two songs uh, today, these, the first song is really a prayer. It's a declaration of our conviction that God is at work in and around us in the lives uh, and in the workplaces of our city, and that God has things that God wants to accomplish. And so as we sing this, I want you to think about it as a prayer and just ask God to say, God, how might the things that I'm going to put my hand to in this coming week, how might those be contributing to your vision for what our life should look like in our city or in our families? or in the school in which I find myself. And, and I want you to think about this as a challenge to offer your work this week and beyond as a, a, an offering to God of saying, I am God, I want to do my work this week with faithfulness, diligence to honor you and to serve well the people that are around me.